0: Yeah, we say church happens in small groups because that's where we can really be the church together, pray into each other's lives. So be a part of that. Go see Mo and the, the gang out in the lobby. Uh, you'll see a little couch. It looks like somebody's living room, and they're right there to talk to you all about it. You can find out all the information. How are we doing, community faith? Are we doing all right this morning? Yeah, it's like, did you feel the cold front? It was down to like 103 this, this week. You know, we're, we're studying Christianity 101. We're finding out, really, the radical nature of Christianity. It's not what most Americans really believe. And the passage today is going to kind of blow our minds. So I, I want to jump into it pretty quickly. We're looking at John chapter 7, and we're asking the question, who is Jesus really? Can we really know that what he said is true? And how can we know? And does it matter? Was Jesus just a good man, a great teacher? Or was he who he claimed to be? C.S. Lewis says this. You can't say that Jesus wasn't God, but he was good. Good men don't say they're God. Liars and crazy people do. Paul David Houston, who's known to us as Bono of the rock band U2. A few days after the Madrid bombing in 2004, Bono did an interview with a French journalist named Mishka Assayas. When the subject of religion came up as the cause of the terrorism, the conversation turned to Christianity and the theme of grace. And Bono said this, it's not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. Jesus is the only way. The French journalist replied, such great hope is wonderful, even though it's close to lunacy in my view. Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but son of God, isn't that a little far-fetched? Bono's answer, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet. Obviously, a very interesting guy had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please just be a prophet, a prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric, we've had eccentric prophets. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that, but don't mention the M word because you know if you do that, we're gonna have to crucify you. Bono goes on, he says, then Jesus replies, no, no. I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps, but actually I am the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, Oh, my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or he was a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a complete nutcase, for me, that's what's far-fetched. Interesting, huh? John chapter seven, Jesus is six months away from being crucified and their big question is, who is this Jesus? Is he God? Is he a great teacher? Does it even matter? Last week in chapter six, we read that many of his disciples, most of them rejected him. There were like 20,000 people gathered around him and they almost all Left, They were upset as he talked about his life, about his sacrificial death. They they couldn't figure out what he's talking about, about his bloodshed, and they turned and walked away. So he was rejected by his disciples. In the early part of chapter seven, we see that he is also rejected by his brothers. His brothers begin to make fun of him. Can you imagine growing up with the perfect sibling? That'd be a little difficult, right? And so they are cynical and sarcastic. And in the passage we're going to look at today, he's rejected by the leaders of Israel and then by the people as a whole. So almost everyone rejected him. And all of them are going to converge at the end and cry for his blood and crucifixion, except his brothers who came to believe in him later and just a paltry few others. So there's this progressive rejection of the most wonderful, the most amazing, the most kind, the most loving person who ever walked the planet. That says something is profoundly wrong with the human race, doesn't it? But Wait just a minute. Isn't that why Jesus said he came? Didn't he say that he came because there was something fundamentally flawed in us and we could never get to God on our own, so God came down? Let's look at it. John 7, we'll start with verse 12. I've got it on the screen there for you. You can look on your phone. I'm reading out the New Living Translation. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowd. Some argued he's a good man, but others said, He's nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public, for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. Then midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained, they asked. So Jesus told them, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my message is from God or is merely my own. Some of the people who lived in Jerusalem, I'm skipping to verse 25, started to ask each other, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Verse 26. But here he is speaking in public and they say, Nothing to him could our leaders possibly believe that he is the Messiah, but how could he be? For we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he will simply appear and no one will know where he comes from. This was a a common Jewish misconception among the common people. They had misinterpreted a few verses in the Old Testament and had kind of gotten the tradition that the Messiah would just appear suddenly in the temple straight from heaven. No one would know who his family was and, and he would come to be that great, that great conqueror. So how can this be the Messiah? Verse 32, when the Pharisees, this is the religious leaders, heard that the crowds were whispering such things, they and the leading priests sent temple guards to arrest Jesus So we see here, some were confused. Who is this guy? Some were just out and out hateful and rejecting the the religious people of the day. I mean, the leaders, they, they hated Jesus with a passion. Verse 33, but Jesus told them, and listen to this really carefully. I will be with you only a little longer. Then I will return to the one who sent me. You will search for me but you will not find me, and you cannot go where I am going. Another version reads, where I am, you cannot come. The Jewish leaders were puzzled by this statement. I want us to dig in just a little bit right here. I've read this probably a thousand times, but as I was preparing this for you this weekend, it jumped out at me and I saw some things I had never seen before. I mean, this is Jesus and it's sad. It's heart-wrenching. He's saying, hey, everyone's rejecting me, but you know, I'll be out of your hair before long. Jesus knew his time was short. He knew that he was going to be crucified. He already knew all of that. You won't have to put up with me very much longer. There's There's a loneliness here, I think, that you hear in his voice. There's a sorrow here. Six months from now, he's dead. He's crucified. God's son loving a world that rejects him, that hated him. He now starts to count the days before he's gone. This is an infinite agony for him. You know, the Bible says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. His story is is so full of sorrow and rejection. He goes, you know, when he says here, he says, I'm going back to the one who sent me. You don't have to deal with me much longer. But he says, the sad thing is, you're going to search for me, but you won't find me. And then he says, where I am, you cannot come. Where are you? What does this mean, where I am? Jesus is saying, I'm going to the Father. I came down from heaven. I'm going back to heaven. I'll be in heaven, but you won't be there. Where I am, you cannot come. Pretty scary stuff. Who is this Jesus? Does it even matter? I believe it does. I think that what Jesus says here is of eternal significance for us. Where I am, you cannot come. And this statement applies both to the confused and the rejecting. There's no difference. It's the same end, whether you rejected Christ out and out or you were just, I, I, you know, I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure. What does it mean? It means there's gonna come a time in your life when you will seek me, he says, and I won't be there. That's not a new idea in scripture. Genesis chapter six, the very first book of the Bible, God says, my spirit will not always strive with man. It's possible to seek me too late. The prophet Isaiah said, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he's near. There are warnings all through the Old and New Testament about waiting too long. In the very next chapter of John, John chapter eight, we'll see in verse 21 that Jesus says basically the same thing again with just a little variation, but listen to it. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. That's what he added. You will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Shut out of heaven Forever. You see, hell is not where Christ is forgotten. It's where he's unavailable. Hell is simply truth discovered too late. And Jesus makes this penetrating and powerful statement. And there's two sides to it. You'll seek me, but you won't find me. And where I am, you cannot come shut out of heaven. Now our American conception is God is basically good and we are basically good and everybody who is good is going to go to heaven. I mean, we're all basically going to go to heaven, right? I mean, we're all going to go to heaven. Well, except for Hitler, you know, he's not going to heaven and he's bad, maybe a serial killer. Maybe your ex-wife or husband. Oh, and maybe the mother-in-law. You know, I mean, anybody who is good is certainly going to go to heaven, right? And I'm good. I'm one of the good people. I'm going to go to heaven. If that's what you've been thinking, it's hard to imagine a more clear and devastating statement than this. You will seek me. You won't find me where I am you cannot come. And this statement is made to two groups. It's made to the people in general, and it's made to the religious leaders. Now, the people who face Jesus, I mean, with one perspective, it's, it's kind of confusion. Who is this guy? What's going on? The leaders have a whole different perspective. They just out and out hate him. But both are told the same thing. The people are confused. The leader's blatantly reject him, and neither will be where he is. I think if we could see the face of Jesus that day and the heaviness in his heart, the sadness with which he says this, the sense of grief for these people that he loves so much, we would start to maybe get a little bit of an inkling of it. Some of you are going, look, but wait, Mark, now, wait a minute. Hold on a minute. I mean... Is that really fair? I mean, some of them were just good, confused people. They won't be in heaven? See, when we ask this, it shows that we don't understand hell. We don't understand hell. You see, everywhere God is, he reigns. I mean, if God is present, he is in charge. Hell is the only place that God isn't. And and God is kind. He's a gentleman. You know, that's why we always say, I can't see this kind God sending anyone to hell. He doesn't send anyone to hell. But you see, if, if we say, no, no, I will control my own life. I won't bow to your lordship over me. Well, he created a bubble of space where he isn't. Jesus called it Gehenna. And Gehenna was the garbage dump of the day. He was trying to say, it's gonna be kinda like that big garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus talked a lot about hell. It's gonna be bad, at least eventually. You think about it, there are places today in our world that we call hell on earth. That is with God intervening all the time, his grace pouring out upon us. Can you imagine what it would be like billions and billions and billions of years with hundreds of millions of people being in a place where God isn't? I mean, if we could turn this beautiful planet of ours into a hell on earth in places. Think what can be done when you never die. You don't even have the consequences of that. And there's no God to intervene. Suffering, fire, worms. Wait, it still doesn't seem fair to me, Mark. I mean it doesn't seem fair. But you see, I think God knows something we don't know. I want you to look back again. There's a key verse that you might have overlooked because I always did, verse 17. It's an astounding promise. It's a law that's built into God's universe. Listen to what Jesus said. This is so clear and so astounding and sometimes we just skip right over it. He says this, anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or merely my own. Anyone who wants to know the will of God will know. You say well, I, I just I just can't figure it out. I just it's in my you know my head I just can't put it all together, no somewhere, maybe even hidden from yourself. You don't want God to rule over you. You don't want to bend the knee to his will. You see, God sees you to the very core. The universal law is willing is the prerequisite to knowing. Jeremiah the prophet put it like this, God speaking. He said, God said to me, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. You see, it's not a head obstruction that people have. It's a heart obstruction. It's a problem of our will, not a problem of our reason. You say, no, I think, no, I mean, no, no, I'm just real smart. I'm trying to figure it out. Jesus says, no, that's not really what's happening. You're saying, I want to control my own life. I want to be the master of my own fate. I want to be in charge the captain of my own soul. And that's what's going on. And see, God being such a gentleman, he says, hey, wherever I am, I rule. And you don't want me to rule over you. And I honor that. So I have to create a place where I am not. And that's where You'll go to spend eternity where I am not. And I give you what you want. You control yourself. You're your own Lord. It's kind of sobering. But what happens if we do come to him? Listen to this. On the last day, verse 37 The climax of the festival, Jesus stood up and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered his glory. He hadn't gone back to heaven yet. Now, I want you to see the scene because most of us, we don't have a Jewish background, so we don't understand. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. This is one of their biggest feasts. It's in October, usually. And hundreds of thousands of people come from all over to Jerusalem, to the temple, and they build these little, um, like, booths. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Booths, They build these little like structures out of saplings and stuff and, and, and they camp out for seven days and it's to celebrate the 40 years in the wilderness when God took care of them. When a whole generation died in the wilderness. Now, why would they want to celebrate that difficult period? Because they're not remembering that the people died. What they're remembering and celebrating is that Every day, God provided bread, manna, and quail in the wilderness. And though they lived in the wilderness and with the sand and the heat and the flies and the desolation all around them, God never failed them. Every day, he provided for them. So seven days every year, they would celebrate that. It wasn't just food that God gave them. When the people became thirsty and they said, Moses... You've led us out here into the desert to die. We should have just stayed in Egypt and they're grumbling against Moses and God. God said to Moses, Moses, remember the rod in your hand, the staff, we talked about it a few weeks ago. I want you to strike the mountain, strike the rock on the mountain and he struck it and when he struck it, water began to flood out of it, enough for all of them to drink clean, fresh, pure water. It was a mighty miracle maybe even greater because the people had grumbled against God and he still met their needs anyway. So what they would do at this feast every day for seven days, the priest, the high priest would fill, go, he'd go to the pool of Siloam and fill a golden urn with water and then he would come back to the altar and he would pour water on the western side of the altar and the people would recite Isaiah 12.3. Hundreds of thousands of voices at once. With joy shall we draw water out of the wells of salvation. With joy shall we draw waters out of the wells of salvation. Then a choir of 4,000 singers, accompanied by 287 instrumentalists, would begin to sing. And the people would cheer. And they would sing the Hallel. The Hallel. That's where we get the word Hallelujah from. The Hallel is Psalm 118, and it ends with these words. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. So they would repeat this ritual every day for seven days. Then on the eighth day, he didn't go to the well. It was a solemn day. It was a quiet day. Jesus, on that eighth day, dramatically captures the moment, and he turns it to himself. He must have positioned himself in exactly the right place, maybe close to where the priest would have been, bringing back that golden urn, that vessel that he poured the water. And Jesus stood and shouted to the crowd. And it's so interesting, that word shouted, ekrazen in, in the Greek. And it means, it's the second loudest word for screaming or shouting or yelling. There's only one other word that's stronger than that, uh, the word anaboa, and Matthew tells us that Jesus used that one time. He anaboad, which is means he yelled at the loudest you could ever possible yell. That was when he was on the cross. Matthew says he yelled with a loud shout and he gave up his spirit. He gave it up. He didn't have it taken from him. He gave it up for us. And John tells us, What he yelled, he yelled out, Tetelestai, which means paid in full. It is finished. If you owed a debt, whenever you finally finished paying off the debt, they would stamp it, Tetelestai, paid in full. And that's what Jesus shouted. But this time he yells out, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink and rivers of living water will flow from your heart. The Jews understood him immediately. For Jesus to say those words at that moment, he meant, I am the rock in the wilderness. I am the source of living water. I am the source of life in the dead places. Come to me, believe on me. And I will give you this living water from heaven. It's so interesting. He said three actions, three words. If you thirst, if you thirst, come, drink. The medieval Latin fathers used to call this notitia, fiducia, and ascensus. The three elements necessary for saving faith. Thirst. You got to realize. How thirsty you are. And that's noticia. Fiducia, you come to him. And then ascensia you drink. If anyone is thirsty, Jesus invites this whole thirsty world to himself. You see, Christianity is not a religion. It, it's a relationship. And he pleads with people to come and drink the living You would think it would be the lost and dying world that would plead with him that we could come and drink the living water. But that's not how it works. You see, there's something broken in us. And so this amazing creator God who wants relationship with us, I don't know why. He's perfect in himself. He bends low. He tore out his heart, Jesus. And he says, I beg you, I long for you, I implore you, come, come, if you're thirsty, come. It's a strange thing. We're the ones who choose to die. It's God who pleads with us to live. He doesn't say, clean yourself up and then I'll I'll give you living water. He just says, come as you are. Anyone, anyone, anyone. Sometimes people try to say, Christianity is too narrow. You say there's only one way to God, but it's not narrow. He said, anyone, anyone, and what a ragged and thirsty bunch we are. What a sight, promises not kept, dreams ragged and broken, relationships in ruins, damaged goods. That's what we are. Why would he love us so Hallelujah. What a Savior. And it's interesting, the word rivers, it's not singular, it's plural. Not a river, but rivers of living water will flow out of us to the world around us. Think of the Nile, plus the Danube, plus the Amazon, plus the Mississippi, plus the Ganges, plus every other great river in the world. He's saying there's an inexhaustible abundance. Come, come and that will flow out. You'll not only be satisfied, but you'll become a river of life to the world. When the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, verse 40, surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others said, but he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. So the crowd was divided about him. Some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. Verse 45, when the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, why didn't you bring him in? Verse 46, we have never heard anyone speak like this. The guards responded. Now, those temple soldiers know what it is to take orders. They, they know the consequences of violating those orders. They're used to people with authority, but they weren't used to hearing anybody like Jesus. This is a level of authority that was far beyond their ability to to respond, literally their their knees buckled under the sheer power of his authoritative words. The Bible tells us that there will be a final judgment called the great white throne from which heaven and earth will want to flee away. And there's gonna be a moment when Jesus is crowned king of everything. And it says, every knee will buckle and say, he is Lord. For those who are going to the place where he is not, that's the only time they'll ever do that. It'll be something that they just can't help. They'll buckle and say, He is Lord, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, but never again will you be required to bow to him. You know, still today, I think there's a lot of patronizing of Jesus as if he were some kind of good man or some kind of man that's better than other men, some kind of noble religious leader, some kind of heroic, righteous, moralist, some kind of merciful, compassionate person. None of that matters. It's irrelevant. To say that Jesus is a good man and and throw those kinds of accolades at him falls infinitely short of the truth. But sooner or later, the decision is going to have to be rendered on his words, it's always about his words. Anyone, anyone who wants to do the will of the Father will know. Your family, your friends, that don't know this savior of ours. It's gonna change the way you pray. You say, well, they're so smart and they're trying to figure it all out. And they got no, that's not what's going on. Change the way you pray. Father, bend their will to you. Because Jesus said, that's the law of the universe. That's what's really going on. If you're here today and you say, I'm just confused. I don't know. Dig deep, look deep inside if you come to the place where you say, I want God's will more than anything else, you will know. He promises it. And if you don't know, that's where the issue is. I want you to close your eyes for just a minute. This radical Christianity, not a religion, Why is it so narrow? Because most religions are us working our way to God. And God says, no, you can't get here. You're flawed, fatally flawed. But I love you, little girl. I love you, little boy, so much that I will make the way. I will open the door. I will beg and plead with you, come to me, come to me, come to me, come to me. If you hear my voice, choose. It's not trying to be good enough. It's not if your good outweighs your bad. It's bowing the knee to the great and mighty and loving and gracious Lord Jesus Christ who gave everything for us so that we could know. Father, I ask that you will open our minds to see that it's not our minds, that it's our will that's the issue. Many of us, many of us in this room have stepped in to you. I ask that we would just press in so close that we would just begin again to feel those rivers of living water. They're inside of us. Let them flow to the world around us. The world needs it desperately. But, God, if there's anyone here that hasn't bowed the knee to you, God, would you just help them to see it, how good you are, how much you love them, what you're offering, and let them choose to do your will. And you promised they would know. We ask it for our friends and our neighbors and our family and our co-workers who don't know you yet. Come kingdom of God upon us. Be done will of God in us and through us in your precious name. Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.